You know that desperate expression, women should be seen and not heard. Jamel Hill has simply been unbothered by it. In fact, with a podcast of the same name, she has lifted her voice to the masses following a standard set in her own life. Jamel gives us a lesson on standing in your truth. The climb to the top feels so good when you get there. Is it just us or can it feel lonely sometimes, even when you're successful? And who defines success anyway? What about life's twists and turns? We've learned a few things along the way, and we're ditching the culture of competitiveness. Bringing together women from different backgrounds to share their stories. Let's do this together. Welcome to Think Tank of Three podcast. Hi, I'm Rishi Candidate Cavasuris, along with Julie Holton and Audrea Fink. We are your Think Tank of Three. And if you are a sports fan, then the name Jamel Hill should be more than familiar to you. She had a very successful 12-year run at ESPN before a chain of events led to New Horizons. Now, a writer for The Atlantic, host of the podcast, Jamel Hill is Unbothered, TV show co-host of Carrie and Jamel Won't Stick to Sports, and a principal in the production company Lodge Freeway Media. Jamel is all about being seen and heard. Jamel has earned every amazing step she has taken, not to mention the negative pushback she's had to walk through. She joins us now to talk about that journey and perhaps even what's next. So Jamel, thank you so much for joining us here on the podcast. Thank you, uh, ladies, for having me. Risha, has just been too long. Man. I know. <laughs> yeah, it's been, it's been far too long of a time. So glad to see you and glad to be with all of you ladies here on this podcast. Thank you so much. It's wonderful to have you here and to have your voice. Listen, let's let's get let's go to the beginning here. What got you into sports writing to begin with? Uh, being a tomboy. <laughs> That's what got me into sports. I grew up in Detroit. <laughs> yeah, I was the neighborhood tomboy. So I was always playing sports with the guys and I was an avid watcher of sports. And um, back in the golden days or the olden days, uh, you actually had to read the newspaper to keep up with your sports teams. Yeah, yeah, I know. I know. I, I feel, I feel like a newspaper. I, a newspaper. What is that? Right. I feel like I just talked about how I grew up churning butter and uh, making a fire out of two sticks. <laughs> OK, but that's that's what it was. It's like so, you know, I, I read the newspaper. So that kind of developed an interest in sports journalism. And I was one of the fortunate ones where I knew since ninth or 10th grade that I wanted to be a sports writer. And so everything I've done since then has been about writing, discussing, agonizing over over sports. So I wrote for my high school newspaper. I majored in journalism, wrote for my college newspaper, had a bunch of internships. Uh, I was working in newspaper for almost a decade before I even got to ESPN, who I often like to say to people, or at least let it be known for the record, ESPN did not hire me to be on TV. They hired me to be a sports columnist for ESPN.com. The TV thing just kind of happened. It was not a direction I was looking to go. In fact, uh, and Risha, you know this, back sort of then, you know, because my I started as a professional in 1997. So there was a very clear line between print and broadcast. You know, I affectionately called it Bloods and Crips because we just- <laughs> yes. Yeah, print reporters, we did not have a lot of respect for TV people. <laughs> and, and we used to kind of chide them and uh, go with them a little bit. And we considered ourselves the real reporters. So the idea of crossing over to TV was just not a thing at all like it is now. And so I was yeah, dedicated- they called us the talking heads. <laughs> the talking heads, that is correct. Be like, look at those pretty people and their fancy little makeup and suits all on TV, you know? So 
we thought we looked down on actually being on television. And so my, everybody's like, oh, ESPN must've been your dream job. ESPN wasn't even on my radar. Like I watched ESPN as a sports fan and as somebody who wrote about sports, but I didn't want to be there. My, my dream job was working at Sports Illustrated because that's where all, to me, all the best sports writers went to work. So, so yeah, I mean, it was, uh, they often say, you know, God makes plans or you make plans and God laughs. And that really is what broadcasting was for me. It just happened to evolve. And I am not afraid to admit, and I tell younger journalists this all the time, I got into TV for the money. I didn't get into it because I loved it. I just started the story I like to tell. It was Matt Lauer that changed my mind. I don't know Matt Lauer and I realized what he's been associated with. But when I saw that report about him getting paid $25 million a year and not having to work on Friday, I was like, you can make that kind of money? And, oh, I'm doing this wrong. I'm hustling backwards. What am I doing in print? So then I just kind of decided that uh, I was more than halfway through my time at ESPN. I was like, you know what, if I want to stay here in particular, and if I want to kind of take things to the next step in my career, I, I have to do TV and do it every day. And so I just made a, a switch. You know, I'd already done a lot of TV and in 2013, I got my opportunity to have my first show at ESPN. Talk to us about the difficulties of carving out your voice in this male dominated world. And we, we talk about this a lot on the podcast. We have a lot of women who share their stories in all sorts of different industries, but we're talking here about journalism, which in and of itself is a male dominated world. I come from a news background. And so, so I know um, from the news side, just journalism in general, male dominated world, but now we're also talking about sports. <laughs> so, you know, what, what was this like as you navigated and really, I say navigated, but really carved out your own path in this world? So uh, uh, most women, uh, a lot of women work in male dominated industries, but sports is is different because that's like the maleness of male is to be in sports. <laughs> and you get sent messages all the time, both big, little, and in between that this is not where a woman belongs. And be it the makeup of the, the industry itself, which in newspapers was very white, very male, very, very similar. Um, in broadcasting, in many ways, ESPN is an exception because, you know, ESPN actually has for on-air talent a little bit more of a diverse picture than most networks have. Behind the scenes, it looks just like, you know, white male, like that's pretty much what it is. And so where I was fortunate is that as I was first getting interested in this business, I was very lucky because I had female mentors who gave me the sense of belonging. So as I mentioned in ninth and 10th grade, that's when I figured out I wanted to be a sports writer. I wrote for my high school newspaper, but two sort of life-changing things happened at once. Uh, the Free Press, the professional paper in Detroit, which is the largest paper in the state, they had a high school apprenticeship program for Detroit high school students who were interested in journalism. I applied to the program, I got in um, the summer, I think this was the summer before my 11th grade year. And you spent six weeks at the paper, they assigned you two mentors and you learned about how to, you know, what journalism was about, how to write a story, how to interview people, how to develop sources, those sorts of things. And the two mentors I were assigned were two women, one of which is Johnette Howard, who later worked at ESPN as a sports columnist. She worked at the New York Daily News as a sports uh, columnist as well. And the other was Rachel Jones, who at the time was a senior features writer. And then she um, went on to do public health reporting and a lot of international reporting. 
and working um, in public health. And so because I had these strong women, in addition to the other women at the newspaper who were always encouraging and encouraging me, supporting me, I never knew this was something I wasn't supposed to be doing. And because I had that as a foundation, by the time I did see and did experience people feeling like I didn't belong or I didn't have a place or who was I to be talking about men's sports, I already had too much confidence. <laughs> so it was too late. I it's love like, it. yeah, y'all should have got to me earlier when I was a little more insecure. <laughs> like, too late now. Y'all can't tell me nothing. So I think that having that background was really helpful, which is why I think for a lot of young women, having mentors, having women encouraging you is very helpful. And so by the time, you know, I got to college, uh, you know, I was kind of well on my way. Now, certainly as a professional, you know, seeing how the industry operated, it was very eye-opening. I remember my my second job out of college, I was a beat writer for the free press covering college football and college basketball. And uh, another white male at a competing newspaper told me I only had my job because I was a black woman. And I'm like, if that's the case, how come it's not more me and it's a whole bunch of you? If that's the case. And I'm like, if they really, if they're really in this business going after, because he was, you know, on some white grievance stuff talking about, you know, it was harder for people like him in the industry. And I'm looking around the room like, oh, I'm the only woman in here. And you try to lecture me about difficult? Like, sit isn't down. Isn't it interesting how, <laughs> how, why individuals even go down that road? Because I remember when I was um, working in, in New York for the, the local Fox affiliate, and you know, I went to University of Southern California and I happened to go there with the likes of Willie McGinnis for the NFL, for anyone who's paid attention to the NFL. He was a great defensive end in the NFL and, and, and a, a bunch of individuals that I went to school with and knew them personally. And so he comes to Giant Stadium playing with the Patriots. I see him in one of the corridors and I am well aware that eyes are constantly watching me as a black woman, but as a woman in this sports realm. So I am constantly aware of that. So I see him in the distance. I'm like, Hey, it's so good to see you. And I'm standing back and he literally stood there and put his hands on his hips. He said, girl, you better come give me a hug. You know me. And I walked over and we <laughs> said, hello, how are you doing? What's happening in life? And wouldn't you know that probably later that night, there's a, a thing on one of the ridiculous, you know, websites that they have that I stopped reading that basically just blasts different broadcasters and reporters for whatever reason saying, yeah, she's out there making out with um, football players and stuff. That's probably why she's got the job she's got. And I'm thinking to myself, really? And thankfully I had a friend on that website who said, well, let's see here. She went to USC and he went to USC. And if you do any history, they knew each other because they were there probably at the same time. And chances are they're actually really good friends as opposed to doing anything inappropriate. Not to mention the fact that I've known her personally and inappropriate does not exist for her. So why don't we just dial that back? But it's the fact that people do that in the first place. Just uh, fragility. They just need to throw you fragility. They need to throw white you male fragility. It, it makes no sense. It it's like, I'm sorry. And did I say, oh, I I wonder who you went and what? It's like it's just it's it's nuts. It's nuts. It, it's very tiresome because you know they can't decide how much negativity they want to throw at us. And then in that either we got the job because we're a woman, we got the job because we're sleeping with somebody, we only want the job because we can get a husband that is a professional athlete or a coach. So it's just, you're constantly in this, these web of, of 
you know, misogynistic tropes all the time. And, and you're damned if you do, damned if you don't, right? Yeah, 100%. I mean, I've had that same experience that you've had, not with somebody that I actually went to, to school with, but it was just a player that um, I developed a rapport with, a rapport that was never inappropriate, a rapport that if there was a, if it was a man in my position, that they would have been applauded for, you know, sort of developing that kind of relationship with the player. And, you know, you would hear the whispers if you got scoops, if a guy, you know, if a star athlete or a prominent athlete, you know, gave you more time than somebody else, or if you were able to, you know, kind of, again, source the way that most journalists are taught to source, if you're a woman, then you have to be aware of the fact that people are gonna make assumptions about why that relationship exists when you're just doing your job. And so yeah. it's um, it can be discouraging for a lot of younger female journalists. I just happen to be, you know, just again in that space that I belong in this uh, industry as much as anybody else. So while it was irritating, it right. never was something that discouraged me from what I was doing or convinced me that I had made the wrong career path and, you know, or frustrated me at night. But I definitely understand why a lot of women do get very frustrated by this. Mm -hmm. So I don't, I certainly don't want to position it like I'm somehow special and different and unique. No, it's not that. It's just, I just was lucky and fortunate, to be honest, because I, I have definitely seen some other women who I've known who have left the business because of these things. So it's real. So speaking out about what you think as a woman, when you're talking about decisions from the N NBA or the NFL is pretty straightforward. You didn't likely have to concern yourself with what will ESPN think if I call a trade a bad one. <laughs> but when professional sports scenes clearly run smack into the social realities of our lives, now you have to think about the opinion you put out. Now you have to think about, well, if I give them insight that's not just this is a bad sports move, what are they going to think? What was that like for you, that switch between just reporting sports and really putting yourself out there? The interesting thing is that I'd sort of been reporting on those issues my whole career, but didn't put a name to it. Because, you know, when you're a journalist, I think you do bring your lived experience to the table. And I think it's very beneficial to do that, especially if you represent a, um, you know, a, a gender or a race or a community or even a socioeconomic background, that those things actually give you more context and more understanding in your reporting and sometimes more, a lot more empathy. And I had done stories about, you know, the lack of, of, of female coaches in women's basketball, the lack of, um, you know, at, at one point, uh, it's still this way, but, you know, in, in college athletics in general, like there was barely any black athletic directors. And yet you have a sport that is driven by basketball and football and the, most of the athletes are black. So I had done that kind of reporting bef long before I started sort of commentating on it from a social perspective and getting people to see the larger picture. And it never occurred to me that it was something controversial. I mean, I just assumed it was just a fact and that everybody knew, which is probably not a great assumption. And then just, you know, having read enough about world history, like there were just certain basic things that I felt like I understood. So fast forward, when you're at a place like ESPN, you know, the, the thing that's tricky about being there is that you're, yeah, you're working for what many consider to be a destination job in sports, but you're also working with a network that is in business with all the leagues that they cover. And so they're trying to perform an entertainment function and a journalism function at the same time. And sometimes those things don't go together. And 
as the old adage goes, what's understood need not be said. And so you already knew, nobody had to tell you, but there was, you knew there was some kind of line that was there that you could only say so much, you know, without it being a bigger issue for the people in the C-suites who are cutting deals and making sure those broadcast rights stay within ESPN's hold. So, you know, the thing is, once you start speaking out about institutionally how things are broken and how they work and how they often further dehumanize and subjugate marginalized people, then it becomes a different ballgame because people who watch sports largely want to be entertained. They don't want to think about these things. You know, most of these leagues that, that are major leagues now that we cover all has segregation policies. All of them did not, you know, the NFL did not allow black players at one time. Major League Baseball didn't allow black players at one time. So when you have leagues that are rooted in racism and built on that, why would you think it was just going to go away? You know, it wasn't, okay? And so sports fans have been allowed to live under this fallacy that real-world problems don't happen in sports just because it's a results and outcome-based entity that we're talking about. But no, sports is political. Sports is racist. Sports has all these sources misogynistic. We've seen how female athletes have been treated. We've seen how they've been marginalized and dehumanized. I mean, it happens in present day. We just saw this with the USA Gymnastics team, oh. right? Mm -hmm. Yes. So we, we've seen this, right? But at the same time, I also think sports is also a great opportunity for us to not only explain some of the problems that we have, but it's also a great opportunity to come together on these things because sports is one of the few things that we actually do together as Americans across, you know, different economic backgrounds, racial backgrounds, different genders, sexual orientations. It's like anybody can be a Lakers fan, right? right <laughs> you can, right. you know, and so it's like if, if LeBron James is speaking about something that's important beyond just basketball, that's an opportunity to reach a cross section of people and for those people to come to an understanding. So while sports um, has certainly allowed people to sort of live in a lie to some degree, it also gives them an opportunity to develop sensibilities they may not have developed by just watching CNN or just paying attention to the political news. I think it's also important to recognize that our entertainment comes at a cost and that cost is people's lives. Mm -hmm. And so it's fine for you to go to a movie and not want to think about the background. That's great. But let's not live in a society where it's acceptable for us to segregate, to be misogynist, to be racist. I want to be able to enjoy my sports and not think about it. I want to be able to listen to music and not think about it. I want to be able to watch TV and not think about it, but that's not the world we live in. So instead of just saying, well, entertainment doesn't count, let's say, okay, well, we're not going to allow entertainment to be a place where this exists. And that way I don't have to think about it when I'm watching my movie or watching my game. And it's okay to have standards for it. Like that's not, right. <laughs> that's not, it's not necessarily a, a you know, a, a bad thing either. Right. I mean, it's, it's a place where we can critically think and be entertained and those things don't have to be two different things. And I'm not saying that we hold everybody to some impossible standard of perfection. What I am saying is that when there is an opportunity and a clear wrong, that we got to be okay with discussing that, calling that out, bringing awareness to it without um, there's certain, you know, the, the stick to sports crowd, you know, acting like they're mortally offended by this. Well, and not only that, because that, that, that whole shut up and dribble, just, you know, just, just do the sports thing beyond being ex excruciatingly disgusting is the fact that you're, so what my brain doesn't function outside of dribbling a ball, throwing a ball, you know, hitting a golf ball. I don't have any other 
any other thoughts that, that you're that dehumanized. Makes, you're de- completely dehumanized as if I can't think outside of whatever playing field that I'm supposed to be on. It just makes no sense because if you're going to act like Jackie Robinson didn't have to carry the world on his shoulders when he stepped out onto that baseball field with death threats coming to him because why is this black man on the field? Muhammad Ali, all these individuals who act like that isn't a real thing. It's just, well, it's just ridiculously ignorant, but. Well, the, the problem is though, is that we, <laughs> we're great armchair quarterbacks, right? So Muhammad Ali, Jackie Robinson, Arthur Ashe, those are certainly people that we hold in high esteem. And the problem is none of us or a lot of people don't want to remember what it was like for them in a moment. See, it's easy to say you support Muhammad Ali now. What were you saying? Correct. And this is what I bring up with Colin Kaepernick all the time is that like, you know, as much as history shows us otherwise, we don't actually learn from it. We literally are put him through the same thing that we swore we weren't going to do after seeing constant examples of people losing their careers, you know, being completely scorned and facing a lot of hate off of the simple principle of wanting equality. Like to know that that's the reason that Colin Kaepernick isn't playing is just, it's, it's ridiculous. It defies all logic. But the problem is that, you know, with this whole idea of of shut up and dribble, that it is usually centered around, you know, black athletes. And there is this idea that because these particular black athletes have been able to rise to a level of prominence, fame, wealth, that typically most Americans don't experience, that the trade-off for being allowed, and I'm putting allowed in air quotes, allowed. Mm-hmm. right? The trade-off for being allowed to reach this position is you got to shut up. And you just got to be happy with what we, another air quotes, given you, all right? And so the, it really comes from a place of racism, to be honest. And we have seen this so yeah. often throughout history that has nothing, that is not even related to sports. That's generally been the position that white supremacy has upheld. Because in order for white supremacy to exist, it relies on not only the lies and the distortions, but the lack of true telling of history in order to thrive. It has to. So that is the how it how it happens. And so even now as we're having this conversation about the people who are unvaccinated in sports, I don't agree with anything that has come out of Kyrie Irving's mouth. But I don't care about but what I I will only support his right to say it, but we also have a right to challenge it and tell him where right. he's wrong. Okay. But do I want him to shut up? No. And that is the part that we have to be able to to kind of graduate to is that giving athletes the right to have these opinions even if we don't necessarily agree but they got to be okay with being challenged in the marketplace of ideas and that's kind of the way it works absolutely i love the thought of challenging them but i also i want to jump back and just say i think that it makes it worse that we tell our athletes that they're not allowed to have an opinion, that their job is to be there to play the sport so that we can, it's like, wait a minute. And I'm saying this, of course, as a white woman, are we saying that our athletes are only there for our entertainment, that they don't, they're not actual humans who are afforded opinions. I mean, it makes it even worse. And, and if anyone can't see the white supremacy in that, it's so infuriating. One thing that I am, 
noticing or have noticed about today's generation of athletes like Simone Biles, Naomi Osaka, they are not willing to sacrifice their peace for, for our entertainment. And I appreciate that about them. And because they feel, I think, much more ownership than some of the previous generations have felt uh, over their careers and certainly with social media and other mechanisms, they're allowed to have a different kind of ownership over their careers than their predecessors did. And I'm, I'm glad they're exercising it to the degree that they are, because that's part of how we are supposed to evolve is like each generation is supposed to have it better than the last. And I, I'm, their agency has really been something very inspiring to watch. Let's bring this conversation back to you. Having opinions, especially, and you have very strong opinions and you have, and you have no problem putting them out there. It's, it's what you do, it's who you are. They became extra, extra famous during the time of number 45 he himself decided he felt the need to to speak out against you, which I found interesting considering you have an entire country to deal with, a pandemic and everything. <laughs> you would think he had better things to do, right? <laughs> a, a, a sports commentator. I think you have some other things. So what I wanted, what does it tell you? What does it tell you when someone, not only just the president of the United States of America, and but his staff as well, that they decide that we're going to make this woman, the priority of the day, she should be fired. There's a few different ways to look at that. Is, uh, you know, I'm, when I got into journalism, uh, and granted I was covering sports, I wasn't covering news. A lot of my friends covered news or politics. You know, they covered city hall, city governments. And there's something kind of cool about when city hall comes after you. Like we all, you know, journalism class and everything, you were taught that like, this is, you're an effective journalist based off if you make the power structure uncomfortable and make them come after you. That's when you no, know you're you've done doing your something job. right. You're doing something right. That's when you know. So it was always a badge of honor in that regard is that, wow, this really, re the president of the United States is that insecure, okay? A hit dog will holler, as they say. So um, so there was, that, there was that end of it. But the other end is that it blew up my life. I mean, there's no question about it. It's like, you know, when it reaches that the highest level of government, um, when, you know, you have the press secretary at the time, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, saying I should be fired in a White House press briefing where they're talking about international conflicts and all these other things. And somebody's like, hey, what about this ESPN Sports Center anchor that said this? It's just like, it's just something ridiculous about that. The stressful part about it was the reaction to it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, people threatening me and, you know, I couldn't even open up my Twitter app because it was, I was just getting too many responses and like, you know, I had to shut off my voicemail at ESPN. You know, I, there were some good that did come out of it as, as well, because at that time, this is October, 2017, I've been a sports anchor on uh, a sports center anchor rather since um, February, 2017. So we're talking like I'm six months into a job I hate. <laughs> That's the other thing is that before Donald Trump ha happened, I wasn't very happy on sports center. And um, was having a rough go of things there, and I was really thinking about you know what my next career move was going to be, and all the things I've been thinking about in the back of my mind. Donald Trump sped up for me, <laughs> right? And so, because especially in that situation with ESPN, uh, there was a lot of trust that was broken during that time. And you know, the other thing too, coming from a newspaper back background, as I mentioned to you all, there's this idea that like. The, the people that are in power, you're going to piss them off at one point. And one thing that 
I routinely saw in newspapers is that when that happens, we're going to have your back, right? When that happens, we are going to stand with you because you don't let the government come after your journalists. That's a no-no. That's why we have freedom of the press. That's what that means. That means freedom from government intervention, government sanction for criticizing the government. That's the core of what that means. And so, and, you know, lack of censorship. So like, these are the principles of which my profession is based off. And so while I, I, the suspension didn't bother me, you know, some of the things going on behind the scenes didn't bother me. The only thing that bothered me is when the president had his say and Sarah Huckabee Sanders had her say and ESPN was silent. That's what bothered me. Um, because in that moment, even though I certainly brought you a new list of problems and that's fine, but you can't stand for that because you effectively tell me that you don't have the stomach for this. And so once that was clear to me, I felt like we had um, reached a situation where our relationship was untenable because I could no longer trust them. And while I certainly wasn't under the illusion this was not a conditional relationship, because anytime you work for anybody, it's conditional because they can fire you, you can leave, you can quit. Like, you know, it, these things are meant to come to an end, but there's just certain things that you got to be able to do. And when that didn't happen, it just, it changed me. So how do you start? How, I mean, where do you go from there? Because you have suddenly become the target of the man who was in the highest office in the world, right? And, and his administration, you have a company that should have your back, you feel, and doesn't. You have, not to mention, you can't even have your voicemail on because you have death threats coming in and, and God only knows what. How do you start to then, for you, piece together how you're going to move forward and where you're going to move forward from there? Well, um, for me, number one was to get out of Sports Center. And again, that had nothing to do with Donald Trump. But the reaction to that situation, I was paying for on Sports Center because um, there seemed to be this fear. Because I often have to remind people that what I said about Donald Trump happened on Twitter. Like, I I didn't open up Sports Center at six o'clock and say, Good evening, everybody. Donald Trump is a racist. Yes. Like, that's not how that, that's yes. not how that happened. But in their minds, people think that's how it happens. So they're just like, Oh, well, what do you expect if you say things on company time? I'm like, I ain't saying on company time. It's it's hard though, because you know, social media is foreign territory for, for most media outlets. And so, like when I again, when I was coming up in newspapers, you could not have political signs on your front yard. You could not tell people how you voted, like nothing. The problem is that uh, media outlets have wanted journalists to be journalists first before they're actually people. Not I'm like, you've been, like me being a journalist, I'm a black woman, that's first, okay? <laughs> like the journalism part isn't first, but they want the journalism part to be first. And so you're asking for something that's completely unrealistic, all right? So that was a lot of media op companies operated that way. But see, social media kind of blew that up and made it more difficult because suddenly you have people who watch you every night or who read your columns and social media exposes you, the real person. And so they tell you that you have to represent ESPN at all times. Why that is still problematic is because they know that the public is watching. And so they haven't really figured out how to manage that. And I don't, you know, I don't pretend to know the answers, but I do know that living under this assumption that you can make people who work for you turn off a part of themselves at your convenience so you can make money 
is not a solution. Okay. Sounds really similar to what we're expecting for uh, our our players in sports. Correct. That's the problem in the media right now is that we, and I, and I get it, when we were coming up through journalism school, they're like, you have to have both sides representing an issue. The assumption was that the issue was something that where a both sides argument belonged. There's no both sides to racism. Okay. There's not, there's not one. Right? There's not a both sides to misogyny. There's not a both sides to sexism. Like on policy, there's a both sides. And so once we deny journalists the ability to tell the truth, we're in trouble. We're in trouble. And so that's why the profession, he forever changed how journalists cover not only the president, but just how we cover a lot of things. Like I read certain he headlines, you know, it's just been this story that's out of Texas as these asinine attacks on critical race theory continue about how you know a school administrator is talking about an opposing view of the Holocaust, an opposing view, what? <laughs> we, we've had guests before and talking about meeting people where they are. And I remember posing the question, but if, I, but if you're not even starting in fact, if you're not starting in truth, how can I meet you there? I can't meet you there if you wanna act like the civil war wasn't about holding on to slaves. Exactly. <laughs> I, I, can't, I can't meet you there. And, no. and that's that's how you wind up giving a platform to nonsense is when you're still arguing over the fact that we all know is a fact, right? It's like if you still you still have people talking about heritage, not hate, it's like, what are we doing? <laughs> like, what are we doing? So it's just so yes, you're Risha, you're a thousand percent right. It's gotta be basic facts that we all agree on before we can even move a discussion for it. Jamel, we could we could go on and on with you about so many other things, um, and uh, maybe I hope we can we can bring you back because you are also very good at going away from you and making. <laughs> so you're, you're accustomed. She's accustomed. Uh, he is accustomed uh, to the, the adage of being a a reporter, right? Right, Julie about. <laughs> I am not the story, except for this podcast, you're supposed to be the story. <laughs> and apparently she, caught, of, me. she a, caught me instead of a 30 minute podcast, we need like a three hour podcast yeah. here all day. <laughs> but um, that's funny. All right. Before we wrap this up, we are gathering advice from you for our listeners. Um, and so it's just our rapid fire questions. Are you ready? I am ready. I love all rapid right. fire questions. There you go. All right. Number one. Is there a lesson that you've recently learned that you wish you had learned earlier in your career? Not being afraid of the word no, as in me saying it, <laughs> like not, not as in hearing it, like I'm accustomed to that for sure. But as, as Lena Waithe once told me, and I'm not sure if this is an, an, an original phrase as in to be credited solely to her, is that no is a complete sentence. Actually, she said no is a complete MF in sentence, but... <laughs> Uh, but from that, I learned a lot is that I think we need to be very aware of what our limits are. And as women, especially, you know, me, I, I'm an entrepreneur now, like that's the, the step my career has taken me now. And there are limits to my bandwidth. And I need to be okay with saying like, I don't even have a bandwidth for that right now. I'm sorry. I'm learning to not blow past these stop signs and understand that I will do you no good if you're trying to pitch me something, I got to review something and bandwidth is gone. And I just don't want to admit the bandwidth is gone. So no is the word I wish I would have known earlier in my career. From all of the lessons that you've learned, what one piece of advice would you offer to any woman? 
Uh, to bet on yourself. And I know it's, it's stuff that they probably, that phrase they've heard before. So I want to go into a little bit of, of detail with it. One thing that I realized about the journey, my own journey and the journeys of, of my friends who have been able to become, you know, quite successful as a, like just an independent in, entity is that all those jobs you had, all those experiences you had professionally and personally were preparing you for the moment to bet on yourself. And we sort of ignore the fact that we have worked very hard to make other people money. So why would you not yes. work as hard for yourself, if not harder? So when we get to the point of where we want to bet on ourselves, we have a lot of self-doubt, a lot of insecurity, a lot of reluctance, because we're afraid that it won't work. And I get that. There's a healthy fear that can drive you. But a lot of the fear is thinking that um, it's going to fall apart when we haven't fallen apart for other people. We're going to do it for us. That's when we're going to stand up the strongest. It's for ourselves. And so I have I realized that so much of that is just us really not understanding or knowing our worth. And everything, you know, when I left ESPN, and I'm sure we should probably heard this too, people judged your success based on whether or not you wound up at another ESPN. That's not what it's about. What it is about is are you doing something creatively that makes you happy, personally that makes you happy? That's the only litmus test that matters. It doesn't matter if you never appear on SportsCenter again. It doesn't matter if you know you never have the same quote unquote fan base that you did before. That's like all very materialistic, nonsensical, shallow things. What matters to me more is that the life that I'm leading more right now, I could not have had at ESPN at all. Like creatively, I'm very happy. I'm producing the kind of content that I've always wanted to produce. I'm personally happy. I'm living in the city I love and not Bristol, Connecticut. Like, I don't want to be there. I'm married. Like, I, I am living the life that I wanted to live. And so if people are judging whether or not I'm a success, like, well, but I don't see you at the six o'clock sports center every night. I don't care. Like, it's just like, so that is why I say the betting on yourself part matters because it can get you to the place where you are able to have that per personal and professional happiness just because you're going to invest in it in a much different way. So whether that be in creating your own business, whether that be in taking a job, um, we spend a lot of time worrying about what it looks like for other people. We're really, it's just what matters is what it looks like to, to you. So bet on you, don't worry about everybody else. In today's world, what do you think the most important skill for a woman is? Oh, confidence. That's the most important, like is confidence, you know, because I have seen so many women amazing fantastic women talk themselves out of something you know god listen i if if I, if reincarnation is actually a thing i want to come back as a as a, a rational delusional man because don't nobody <laughs> have confidence like like me and i'm telling you <laughs> i learned from it i'll be like i respect it i am not hate noted at all <laughs> but yeah i mean it's true like a woman it, it'll be a a, a higher position and it'll be, let's say, a checklist of 100 things this person needs to have to get this position. We will have 99.5 of them and obsess over the 0.5 we don't have. Men, Absolutely. same checklist. They can have three things. They're like, yep, I'm going for it anyway. I'm like, I don't understand. They have negative three things and they're going for it. Right, exactly. <laughs> they could not even have a thing on there. And they're like, you know what? I need to apply for this. It's like, what? <laughs> like, so confidence is, is really very key for women because I think we talk ourselves so much out of our greatness all the time. And I, I want us to embrace fully who we are. And even if that makes people uncomfortable, you know, be 
be ambitious, be driven, ask that question in the meeting that nobody else will ask. Do that because when we start being our own best champion, our own best mentor, we usually pay, we usually pay the price. So I guess, uh, you know, I'd say confidence, have the confidence yeah of an irrational delusional man. That's how you there proceed you through life. <laughs> that might be my favorite line that's ever right. come out of this podcast. Right? That's pretty, pretty on point. We yeah. that the confidence and I I also want to add to the confidence. We also need a little Julie Holton doll that speaks to you because that's this woman you haven't had that opportunity but Julie is one of those who like is constantly telling you why you're so great. Yeah, <laughs> she breaks it. it down and it's like I just need that on record and just you mm -hmm. wake up in the morning and, and Julie says you're this awesome because <laughs> yeah apparently I just um, need to reach a doll to, to talk <laughs> me up <laughs> Jamel what uh we uh if people want to get a hold of you or 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 seek out some uh some of that rational irrational <laughs> confidence of men that I possess Vera uh, what's the best way for them to get a hold of you well, uh, you guys, thank you so much for pubbing the podcast, Jamel Hill is Unbothered, which is available on Spotify, Spotify exclusive. So make sure you listen to that. Um, it's really an opportunity for people to spend time with people maybe they didn't know a lot about or people they think they know a lot about um, and to hear some of the um, goofy uh, questions I asked them. So and that's one place. And of course, I write for The Atlantic as a contributing writer. So you can check out some of my columns there and, you know, when uh, racism goes down in sports, you'll see me some of everywhere. Because <laughs> apparently, you know, John Group gets fired. The next thing I know, I'm doing three straight days of TV hits. I'm like, golly. <laughs> this go. racism definitely kept keeping me in business. That's for sure. <laughs> Unfortunately. So anyway, um, so yes, I'm, I'm sort of all over, if you will. Jamel. Thank you so much for joining us today. We, we thank you for your time. We thank you for your thoughts. We thank you for your confidence. I appreciate been, it. <laughs> and this has been Think Tank of Three. If you have topics you'd like us to cover or guests you'd like to hear from, send us a message at thinktankofthree at gmail.com. Subscribe to the Think Tank of Three wherever you listen to podcasts and connect with us online. We blog weekly at thinktankofthree.com. Follow us on social media. You can find us individually on LinkedIn and as Think Tank of Three on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Women, click to join our private group on Facebook where we can all share advice and articles. And if you liked what you heard in the podcast, share it. You can find Think Tank of Three on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, Amazon Music, and SoundCloud.